0: When we meet a person for the first time, the conversation can go in multiple directions. There tends to be two broad paths, however. The first often begins with the exchange of pleasantries, you know, how are you? How are you doing this morning? What is your name? Upon these initial introductions, we may find it easy, may find it easier to do all the talking. It's something that comes naturally to us, isn't it? We feel that nervous nervousness. And sometimes, you know, our talking can bore others. You can see them just like, mm, okay, switch the subject now. Most people's favorite topic it is ourselves, if we're honest. We love talking about ourselves. And self-disclosure seems inherently pleasurable to us. Certainly, that's what scientists have said. The second path is that we... We, we draw a conversation out of the person that we meet and we ask them questions. We, we seek to find out more about them. There's, a, there's prodding and there's, skill, there's a skill to it, right? We ask the right questions and promptings to help to direct the flow of the conversation. But often we feel that nervousness when it comes to chatting with one another, right? When we, especially when we meet someone for the first time. Whether it's someone at work, whether it's someone on that table at a wedding and you turn to the right and it's like oh I've never seen you before you're trying to strike a conversation there was a point however where the more we engage with someone the more we chat with them we get comfortable with them we persist in knowing their character we persist in growing to know their ways their behaviours and then the conversation deepens over time they grow in knowing us we grow in knowing them See, prayer is a conversation between God and his creation. Us, as human beings. This conversation is slightly different. It's, it's in many ways different to the normal conversations that we have with one another. There are similarities though at the heart of it. So the knowledge of a person you're converse, conversing with is important along with knowing who you are. See, prayer is a master key reminded by uh, a children's hymn when I was younger. Praise the key, praise the master key. But praise the master key that unlocks God's plans, God's purposes. God wants us to call out to Him. But God, in His sovereignty, orders all things, has purposed all things. But we must cry out to Him. We must call upon Him and cry out for His promises, for His covenant, to seek Him. The Bible says, I wonder how was it when we first met? When we first prayed our first prayer to the Lord? How did we feel? Do you remember that far back? Do you pray to God? As your prayers changed over time? As your conversation, your daily conversation changed? Has it got better? Has it grown daily? Or is it once a week? Do you find it easier to approach God in prayer now than previously? What drives you to pray? What is the heart of your prayers? We look at Luke chapter 18 again, 9 to 14. says, He also told this parable, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, thank you, you know. I'm not like that other man over stand, standing over there. I'm not like other men. Like these extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Hmm. But standing far off, The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to the heavens but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Three points highlighted to you on the bulletin this morning. True prayer has the right knowledge of self. True prayer has the right knowledge of God. True knowledge has the right heart before God. Let's look at that first point. See, one of the worst conversation starters is to begin by bragging about ourselves, isn't it? We've been there. We've had it done to us. You know how it feels when someone's doing... As verbal gymnastics and talking about themselves and their achievements and what they've done you know just to make themselves likeable fishing for some compliment or you know a sense of acknowledgement but most times however it can be a defence mechanism to talk about ourselves because we don't know how to necessarily maybe engage sometimes so quickly with someone that we are meeting but speaking to God is it's unusual it's unusual it's finite beings approaching them Infinite God, infinite God. It is mortals reaching out to God who is immortal. The created seeking the creator. Dead souls beseeching the giver of life. Children crying out to their father, father, Abba, father. The sinners coming to the throne of grace. Our heart is deceitful and we can very quickly make prayer about ourselves our request our desire to be more eloquent than others or our sense of inadequacy in comparison with others we do that oh that person can pray oh, I'm going to go after them ah oh, we feel that sense of inadequacy sometimes i certainly do we're looking at ourselves And this is exactly the error of the Pharisee in this parable. Jesus had been speaking previously in chapter 17 about temptation to sin. What faith looks like. Our approach to God as unworthy servants. The thankfulness of the foreigner who had been cleansed from the leprosy. And then Jesus, as he always does, talks about the coming kingdom. But he says to them, to these Pharisees, that... Kingdom is here. They didn't realize they were focusing on themselves. Jesus was there. The kingdom had arrived. See, Jesus told this parable after the parable of the persistent widow that we know. He says two men approached the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. See, nothing seems different at this stage. Just two men going before the Lord. This was customary for the Jews to do at this time. They went up to the mountain. The temple was in a mountain and there's lots of stairs going up as they walked up to this mountain, the mountain of the Lord. The temple was there, a place of worship, a place to seek God, a place to pray. They had two services, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., daily. There were sacrificial services, atonement of sin, confession of sin, praise the Lord, save us. They would gather together. And prayer often was synonymous with the fact that we're going to worship God. To pray often was that we're going to worship God with our hearts. We're going to worship God with all that we have. We're going to converse with the Lord. It was a posture of worship that included praise, intercession, petition. All things that pertain to the worship of God. Luke elaborates on the meaning of this parable straight from the, out, from the outset of verse 9. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the context. Those that trusted in themselves, those who thought that they were righteous and as a result, then poured contempt and looked down on others. We can see the context, we see the purpose of this parable. It's not just necessarily about praying. It looks like it's just about praying, but it's talking about something deeper, the heart condition. Our focus is initially the self-righteousness of this Pharisee. See, the prayer and even the lack of prayer can reveal the heart issues of a person. J.C. Rao once stated that the true cure of self-righteousness is self-knowledge. He goes on further to say, once let the eyes of our understanding be opened by the Spirit and we shall talk no more of our own goodness. The Spirit of God opens eyes, opens hearts, cracks open and we see ourselves here again here again, the, the prayer of the Pharisee in verse 12, 11 to 12. He says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes all that I, of all, all I get. It's a prayer that he's praying silently to himself. He's looking at outward appearance. Forgetting his heart. Is proud. It's deceitful. His heart is not where it's meant to be at. Wickedly proud. See, the problem with deception is that a person is unaware that they are deceived. The Pharisee was clearly not praying through Jesus to God. He was praying to himself. Very deceived. His prayer started off so well and soon went downhill real fast. God I thank you and then the rest is see this Pharisee compared himself to others whose standards do we compare ourselves to true living God his standards are far above us as humans he looked at others and thought I'm alright I'm okay his self examination was opposed to other human beings That only results in despising others, as we see in this man's life. He had no sense of his sinfulness. He looked at himself and thought, Well, I tick these boxes. In fact, I go beyond the law. I fast twice a week. The law says I fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. But I'm fasting twice a week. I give tithes of all I get, doing more than I should. I'm righteous. That's this man's understanding and his heart. See, his religious activities, his fasting and his tithing had created a proud heart. He was trusting in his works, thinking that his works would save him, thinking that his works would reconcile him to God. See, if you're trusting in Jesus today, you should understand from the Pharisees why. We ought to pray for others. Prayer for others, putting others before ourselves, is from a heart that understands that we are before God all sinners. We are all sinners. We are all before him sinners. We are guilty of our sin just as the tax collector is and the Pharisee. No amount of fasting or tithing can take away that stench of sin if done by selfish gain. See, James says in 5, James chapter 5, 16, says the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. The central word there is that the righteous person, not the unrighteous person, not the self-righteous person. This Pharisee in question had distorted the sense of self and really was praying in order that others could perceive his achievements, right? His heart was more like, well, look, all these things I've done. You can imagine him how he'd be talking to others in his day-to-day life. How much he fasted, how much he gave. His credentials—we're reminded of Paul, aren't we? He says, I, you know, I the Jew of the Jews, right? Remember the Philippians. But he talks about and Paul. Then says before that, he says, that we are the circumcision. We worship by the spirit of God. We boast in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he lists his credentials but says all of this I've counted loss. All I've counted loss. See this was a prayer in ode to himself. Self-worship. He made himself his own God. He pats himself on his back acknowledging that he's something that he's not. He's blinded by his own delusion and does not see the error of his ways. He's thanking God for his good works. He's saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you for all these things I'm doing. But wrongly believes that these good works are the basis for salvation. There is no gratefulness in this prayer. Indeed, how can he be grateful and thankful to God for what he believes he has achieved on his own accord? By his own strength. We see he mentions I five times. I thank you. I am not like other men. I fast. I give tithes. That of all I get. I, I, I. Where is God in his prayer? A person that lives a self-righteous life depends on his own frame. We are reading earlier on. That he remembers, God remembers that we are dust. He remembers our frame. Do we know our frame? Do we know the weakness of this flesh? Do we know sometimes it's deceitful at best? The heart, we sometimes maybe think we have the right intention, but the heart condition can be weak. This man did not consider others and consequently didn't really appreciate what prayer was, its purpose and who it's directed to, to our living God. He was looking at outward appearance. What is the right knowledge of self? How are we to understand who we are? How do we come sincerely, boldly and honestly before God to pray? Well, we see this in the tax collector. We see his approach to God in prayer. Such a short prayer, very simple, not long. He doesn't think I need to say it lot to please the Lord, very short, direct. He says this, seven words, verse 13, God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. This prayer is packed with so much reverence, so much honour of God. A sense that he's bowing down his heart to God. The acknowledgement of his unworthiness. I'm not worthy of your presence, Lord. A sincerity of heart laced with a cry and a pleading for help, mercy. See, tax collectors had bad reputation. They often were looked upon the same way as prostitutes. But here he is. Coming before the Lord. He was hated they're usually hated by others. They're seen as thieves. Sometimes we see HRC as thieves if you think about it, right? But that's also how they were taught about, um, thought about back in the day. See, it's one thing to paint, for others to paint us bad, right? That we are bad, wretched, uh, this person is a sinner, that person is a sinner. But how do we recognize ourselves when we are in sin? How do we know truly that we are sinners, that we need God to save us? It's only the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God can do such a forensic examination of our hearts, needs to cry out for God to help us. See, Jesus tells this parable to illustrate what true self-reflection looks like, what it means to look deep into ourselves. There was a song when I was younger by the M people that sticks out in my mind always. It goes like this. You've got to search for the hero inside yourself. You've got to search for the secrets inside. Search for the hero inside yourself until you find the key to your life. Now that was catchy when I was younger. Now I look back and i like, what is that? The world understands the key to life as discovering that hero inside yourself, that brave, courageous, that go-getter. Go and do what you need to do. It's inside of you. You can achieve it. Set out. Go do it. The world understands honesty and openness as you discovering those hidden secrets inside of you, tucked away. You've tucked them away and almost now revealed like a, a children's past the parcel. Pass it around. Open it up. The key to your life is yourself. That's what the world says. The message of the Bible is counterculture. Jesus' message is that we are all sinners. None of us are capable of good. None of us can please the Lord. We cannot even examine our hearts accurately, honestly, sincerely. As we see in this Pharisee's prayer... If we examine ourselves with our own lenses, we would only see evil or bad that is within ourselves in comparison to others. Our judgment would be skewed, focusing more on the excellent things that we do rather than the frailties and the insecurities that we have, the challenges that we face. See, the tax collector recognized first and foremost that he was a sinner, standing far off. He would not lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest. Ah, He cried out. Anguish. I am a sinner. A man full of sorrow. Man crying out to the Lord. Wretched man I am. We see that submission before God. A respect of God's holiness, of his presence, of his power. There's a cry for mercy, a cry for mercy for the sins that he's committed. See, until we know and understand our helpless estate, we cannot see the requirement to be saved by God. Self-righteousness is the blindness of the soul to sin. If you cannot see your sins and the weight and the burden it carries, the destruction that it causes to others, as we see in the Pharisee, pouring contempt on others, the distance it creates between you and God, then we're either living in self-righteousness, meaning that we are setting our own rules. Our own standards, our own ways. We become our own judge. Treating others with contempt full of self. We may pray, but our praise have a hint of, God, I thank you. But is it based on what God has done? Or what God is doing in us and through us? Or is it what we have done ourselves? Is that me this morning? Is that you, brothers and sisters? Our prayer life, our church prayer life. Do we worship God with our prayers, Or do we worship ourselves? If we worship in ourselves, then we must repent. It may signify a heart that's never truly, has never truly repented. We may be churchgoers regularly, in and out, Christian environment. But do we come to God only in our own time and when it's convenient? When it's, you know, we're kind of laxy-daisy. But do we commit to the Lord? Do we ask God and cry out to him for mercy? To weep at his feet, repenting, knowing that we can't save ourselves. This is our second point. True prayer has the right knowledge of God. Whilst we need to recognise that we are sinners, we need to have a sense of our sinfulness also, right? But then we can't truly pray without acknowledging who the prayer is directed to. It's more simply than stating God or Father at the beginning of our prayers, right? It's a heart-sensed, spirit-empowered, Christ-centred understanding of who God is. If we turn back to verse 11, the Pharisee addresses God. He states, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This Pharisee has placed himself as God. The mere fact that he lists the sins of others, including the tax collector, without acknowledging his own sins, is a reflection of his knowledge of God and an attitude of his heart towards God. God has revealed his word. He's revealed himself in his word. And his word says we should confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do we know this God? Do we know his word? See, his prayer reveals a heart bent on self-worship, self-idealization, self-empowerment, self-destruct as the end thereof. This man truly believed that he's 100% living righteous before God, yet has no appreciation for this God. God's standards are not on par with man's standards. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His standards, his statutes, his promises, they're righteous and they are perfect. Far above. Far above. As far as the heavens are from the earth. His holiness demands 100% obedience. Anything less is disobedience and it's sin. Any disobedience is sin. We can't say that I'm not a sinner because I'm not like Matt Hancock. (laughs) That guy over there, you know, Boris, you know. We can't compare ourselves to others. See, these Pharisees were deemed specialists in the law, adding their own laws to supplement God's laws constantly to further enhance their piety. It's like, yeah, that person looks religious, yeah on the outward they look like they're doing well they're they're following the strict obedience of God's laws they fasted Mondays and Thursdays demonstrating their religiosity they loved those extra traditions of man they were admired yes but the God admired their heart that's the key looking like they were devoted to the law of God, but so far away from God's presence. We can be admired by many, loved by numerous people, well considered, have that sense of piety, a devotion to God, it seems, but be blinded to God's presence, power, and his purposes. There's nothing wrong with fasting. We're about to fast next week. But the right perspective. This this Pharisees thought he could that he could approve, be approved by God, that he could stand righteous before God based on his works. He then, secondly, he poured contempt on others that weren't necessarily following what he was doing. So looking at others again, say they're not doing what I'm doing. At first. Give tithe, looking at others. That deepened his sin even the more. See, so when we read Mark chapter 2, 18 to 22 the Pharisees posed a question to Jesus. Mark chapter 2 says this. We fast. These were the Pharisees. They were saying, We fast. John's disciples, they fast. Why are your disciples not fasting? This doesn't make sense to us. But Jesus answered them and said this in verse 19 Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Whilst the Jesus is in their presence. They, they, they couldn't grasp what he was saying. He's saying he is the bridegroom of his people, the husband of his people, the husband of his church. Can the church fast while Jesus is present? Don't seek your approval. Come before the Lord. Jesus is here. They missed the point. There was a time for everything. You wouldn't expect mourning. I was at a brief wedding reception yesterday. I didn't expect mourning at a wedding. Neither would I expect a sense of celebration like that goes beyond you know what I mean at a funeral. There's a time for everything. Why would you fast when the bridegroom, Jesus, is saying that he is God? The bridegroom is here. That's what he was saying to them. The bridegroom is here. The feast is here. The feast, Jesus, is here. He's offering life, eternal life. He's offering you the bread of life. Eat. That's what Jesus is saying. See, we should fast. And we are fasting next, next week. But our reasons for praying and fasting should be that we want a deeper knowledge of God. We want to grow to know him more. We want to know more about his will, his goodness, his power, his love for us. We want him to lead us, each of us, daily as we walk before him. We want to thirst for righteousness. Thirst for the glory of God. To be made known around us we want to have that boldness to share to the lost that's why we fast we cry out to the Lord stir up within us equip us to do all that you have called us to do help us to know you and your purposes what you have said in your word so that we don't just profess it but we live it each day the tax collector as we go back to chapter 18 of Luke he said God be merciful to me a sinner a sinner A stark contrast to the Pharisee. He's saying, God. He cries out to God. Why? Because he is a sinner. For what purpose? Because he pleads and requests for mercy. Here is a man that prays with the right knowledge of God. His approach is one of reverence, posture, seeking the God of the ages, the ancient of days. This man is only seeking God. Because he knows, he knows whom all mercies flow from. As we read earlier in Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him for as far as, as the east is from the west so it's far so far does he he remove our transgressions from us as a father shows compassion to his children so the lord shows compassion to those who fear him those who know him for he knows our frame god knows us he remembers that we are dust The number one reason to cry out to God is for his mercy. Without his mercy, which is God not giving us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. We have no opportunity, no access to God's throne room. But because God is merciful, therefore he is gracious. He gives to us what we don't deserve. And he, 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 he extends his steadfast love to us as we sincerely and honestly call out to him. Seek his face <laughs> to those who fear him. He says, who can't lift up? we can't lift up our eyes like this tax collector because of our reverence for him. He does not deal with us as he should. He's slow to anger. He does not always chide. Does not repay us according to our iniquities. Imagine if God did repay us for what we have done in this body. Our thoughts, our heart. But He is a merciful God who removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Our sins, our iniquities, those secret sins within us that others don't see, are removed like stains removed with personal. We're made white as snow cleansed by the blood of Christ. There is now an infinite distance between our sin and ourselves because of Christ and what he's done. See, we can only pray from the heart to God who makes himself known to us. And when we know we can't save ourselves, can we know God and not pray it's possible can you not know God and still pray absolutely would that prayer be answered is the question see only a heart that receives mercy mercy from God can call upon God and have that prayer's answered. can you know God and pray little indeed indeed our lack of prayer sometimes indicates how much of God do we know Because if we do, we'd want to converse with him. We'd want to talk with him. We'd want to spend time with him. We'd each day commit ourselves to him and seek, what do you want me to do today? Help me, guide me today. Lead me. See, the word of God is always active. It's always active. But are we submitting to the word? See, the tax collector believed God would grant Mercy. A believer that has true faith is one that has been saved by grace, justified by faith in Christ Jesus. Our response is a true heart worship, a true worship of God. And this is our final point. True prayer has the right heart before God. See, the heart of this passage, the key message that Jesus is revealing through this parable is that there is no justification in self. There is no justification in self righteousness. To be made right with God requires us to see our filthiness, to have the right knowledge of self. It requires us to see that our sin stained garment, our frame of dust, see them for what it, who we are truly and bow down in surrender to God. To the glorious Redeemer, the Son of Man, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Son of God, God Himself, our Master. See, if you're a true worshiper of God, you need, I need, the mercy of God. It's the only way, and the only way to receive God's mercy is through Jesus. It's through surrendering our heart to Him. Life says, no one comes to the Father Except through me. That's what Jesus says. John 14.6 We can only come confidently before God's throne to receive mercy when we deserve the wrath of God. But that's it's kept away. That punishment is kept away because of Jesus. His death on the cross. His resurrection. His work as high priest for us. The atonement that he has made. The intercession that he continues to make for us. Because he sympathizes with our weakness. That's our Lord. He came down from glory. Descended and put on human flesh. To die for you. To die for me. To cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He was tempted. At every point, yet did not sin. He stands for us. We can trust in him. He was killed on the cross for our transgressions, for your transgressions, for my sins, my iniquities. What should have caused me to die eternally? He stands for me. At the cross, he nailed Our sins were nailed to the cross. He took the weight of sin. Our sins past, present, future. Redeemed us from them. Set us free. We received pardon from God's wrath. He dies on the cross. That weight of sin placed upon him. Sorrow, the anguish he felt. That moment. That brief separation from My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he did not remain dead. He rose again. He rose again to new life that we can have life in him. Our heart's cry should be to know him more, to know this Jesus. What has he done for me? Our heart's cry should be to pray for the lost and see our friends, our family members, our colleagues that are on their way to hell to cry out to the Lord for them. We must cry with our hearts and weep about our sins. We must pray, pray for the saints, pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that the Lord would encourage them and strengthen them so that their walk with the Lord grows deeper, grow deep, deeper root in Christ. So they they, they, they bear much fruit in due season. Our supplication for others are only favourable because God, God, Jesus himself, became sin for us. He took on that burden. Jesus forgives sins. He forgives our sins. No matter what we have done, we can come before him. The Bible says he can save to the uttermost. I was at a wedding yesterday and my friend, ex-offender, countless sins that we can say physically. But here's God working in this man's life. Up to this point that we must continue to pray, the Lord continues. But there is no sinner that God cannot save. That past that he had, he stands now in the righteousness of God. He looks at Jesus and says, thank you for your mercy. I was an outcast. Prison said I had no hope. Family said I had no hope. But I stand in the righteousness of Christ now. He has a family now. He's growing more in the Lord. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't look on the outside. He looks what's inside. He says, I can wash you clean. I can cleanse you from that past life. Cry out to me, seek me, know me. This is the heart of prayer. See, verse 14 says this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We exalt ourselves above God when we do not have the right knowledge of self or the right knowledge of God. A humble heart recognises that the sins committed revealed by the Spirit, recognises the sins that we commit, and that's revealed by the Holy Spirit. A humble heart depends on God for all things, because all things are created by Him, for Him, through Him, to Him. The Bible says there, Earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who shall ascend onto the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Only he that has a clean hand and a pure heart. These two were on their way up to the temple. But who had the clean heart? Who had a heart that was surrendered to God? that's ready to receive mercy, that's ready to know the Lord and say, God, you are my God, and I will forever adore you. I will seek your face and cry out to you, for you are God that hears, and you are merciful. From you flow all mercy, all goodness, all grace, all compassion. You are redeemer of your people. As I close, we must ask God, how do we know God? How do we know God? We must ask that we thirst, thirst, Lord. I need to thirst for you. When you're thirsty, there's nothing you can't do. You're searching for that drink. And that's what we must be like when it comes to the Lord. When we don't have it in us, we don't try to conjure that up, but we ask Lord, help me. How do we thirst our th- the living water? He's, it's only by his grace, it's only because of what he has done. So we must cry out to him, Lord, help me. Help me to know you through your word. That I can truly pray from a heart that knows you, that knows your promises, that knows your commandments, that knows your reproofs. We must give thanks for who God is, what he has done, his mercy, his grace. We must know who we are before God recognize that we are sinners yes but we are saved by grace so we come to God with a sense of sin but also a sense of mercy received both together must come to God with a reverent heart respect for who he is his presence and his holiness we pray for others we pray out of our heart to see others being saved, to see others being lifted up, being strengthened. That's how we grow together and to be the measured statue of Christ, to be Christ-like in our words and also our deeds. When we stand together and hold each other's hands and pray together, and we don't despise one another. A person who has faith in who Jesus is, those Is those that have demonstrated true repentance. If you're here today and you haven't given your life to God, what does that mean? You haven't trusted in Christ. You are not trusting in Christ right now. You haven't repented of your sin. Well, cry out to God, for he is a God of mercy. Like this tax collector, say, God, have mercy on me. See, prayer is not an activity. It is a daily relationship with the Lord, conversing daily with the Lord, crying out to Him, conveying our heart with words. But the heart must be right before God. Amen.